Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. It's an exciting time to be in the pathology field. We've seen many new technologies in the last few years, with a few more coming in the not-too-distant future. My guest today is Dr. Jeremy Lee, and he's invented one of these new technologies that I find very interesting. We're going to talk about his experience with different areas of microscopy, which eventually led him to develop a product called Scission Vision, which helps to identify lymph nodes in tissue specimens in real time. All right, here's Dr. Jeremy Lee. We're mostly going to be talking about the new uh, product you've come out with, or is that is in the you're in the process of coming out with it's called scission vision which is for uh finding lymph nodes yes correct i'm very interested in this but i wanted to start kind of uh your story and sort of where you started and how you got to where you are uh and then we'll go into the product all right sounds great so all right so you're originally from china can you can you kind of talk about that what were your early years uh like there and then how did you eventually come to the U.S.? Yeah, so when I was in college, I was um, majored in uh, organic chemistry. And then, so I always enjoyed research. So I participated in undergrad research project. And then, um, so we did a organic chemistry uh, project and they turned out to be quite well. So we published on one of the high impact journals. Uh, but then one thing I realized is that uh, organic chemistry, although it turned out quite well, the project turned out quite well, I realized it was actually not my passion because I realized as much as I love research, is actually, I love something that I can touch and feel. And in the case of organic chemistry, it's just like baking instead of cooking. So baking, you you, uh, you, you prepare all the ingredients, you put it in the oven, and then you lose control. So if anything goes wrong, you don't know what went wrong. But then in the case of actual cooking, then you can uh, taste it, you can uh, change things along the way. If anything goes wrong, you usually at least know roughly what went wrong. So I actually, the, took, the takeaway that I had from the uh, research project I did as an undergrad was that I love research, but I wanted to do something more tangible. Um, so then I applied for grad school and I got admitted to University of Notre Dame. So uh, going back then, what was it that interested you about organic chemistry in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the organic chemistry, it was just so organic chemistry. I didn't know much uh, much better at that point. Just uh, I was majoring in chemistry. So uh, as a as part of the curriculum in the junior and senior year, people are encouraged. Students are encouraged to participate in research projects. And then we had a great organic chemistry teacher uh, professor. So I, uh, I participated in the program. And then also, I guess the other aspect is that he was educated in the United States. Um, so he brought this kind of philosophy of encouraging um, this independent learning, uh, how to read research papers in, in, in English and all these kind of skills. And he, he also taught me those kind of skills. So the human factor, the actual educational Part of the picture was really influential to me as well. But then, yeah, so uh, I that was the that was the experience that I had. It turned out to be a great project. But as I, as I mentioned, the organic chemistry turned out not to be my passion. Yeah, I can understand that. I had organic yeah. chemistry in, in college as well, and it was yeah, you know, it's just one of those things you kind of get through. Yeah, I get that a lot. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So you mentioned you you went to uh, Notre Dame, yeah. And there you you studied physical chemistry and spectroscopy. Now, yeah. first, can we? 
I always have, have trouble with this. What's the difference between regular chemistry and physical chemistry? Yeah, yeah, great question. So physical chemistry is the idea of using physics to study chemistry. So you use, use physics to at the, as a method, and then you, you just use physics as a method to study the chemistry of different materials. Okay, in my case, in plain English, I just design microscopes. So basically, I design new types of microscopes, in, in this case, manipulating light to uh, show a special type of contrast, the step special type of uh, information that you're interested in through a new types of microscope. So uh, I guess in that case, in the microscopic scale. Um, yeah, so I've always been interested in in what research I mentioned, but then in this case, I, I realized that when I build microscopes, I can actually touch every single component. I know where exactly the light is going. So that was that turned out to be my passion is to just work with microscopes, work with work with light. Yeah. But then going back to your question, what's the difference between chemistry and physical chemistry? So physical chemistry is a, a branch of chemistry. Um, so it's particularly the interface between physics and chemistry. And then into the case of organic chemistry, that's kind of the more traditional, the most pure form of chemistry, to my knowledge. And then there are other sub-branches of uh, chemistry, uh, which I'm not an expert in. And then what about uh, spectroscopy? Can you, can you talk about that? What, what, what is that about? Yeah, so spectroscopy is basically spec, uh, so study of uh, spectrums, right? So spectrum meaning that different color of light, different wavelength of light. And then it turns out uh, light is so fascinating that across the entire spectrum, uh, from UV to visible light to IR to different uh, kinds of IR. So there's all types of inf- all, all types of information inside of this uh, a light spectrum. When I say information inside the spectrum, what I mean is that light at different wavelengths actually interact with the different types of tissue, different types of chemicals, uh, materials uh, very differently. And then, uh, so there are a whole bunch of different uh, phenomenon that um, people understood, people learn over the time. And then basically I dedicated my entire career exploring this uh, different uh, ranges of uh, wavelength. And then, so that's the idea of uh, uh, spectroscopy is to basically um, study different wavelengths of light and see how different wavelengths of light uh, interact with different types of tissue. Now, we're going to go through some of the places you kind of went in this area, and most of it deals with microscopy. So, And, and you mentioned it, you, kind of your passion was sort of working with microscopes. How did you discover this this field or this area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so as a PhD, as part of the PhD program, so you usually just pick a few professors that you're interested in, uh, and then you do what we call a rotation, kind of like picking, uh, yeah, I, I don't know enough about the track of doctors, but I understand they sometimes rotate in different specialties just to try to understand how, like, which one is oh, their yeah. favorite. Yeah, so that's the same mm-hmm. idea. So we went, we go through different professors in a couple months to figure out which one is our, our favorite. So it turns out, uh, Dr. Greg Hardland, which, uh, who is my, uh, um, uh, PhD advisor at, uh, University of Notre Dame, but his, um, research, um, area is, uh, microscopy or, and spectroscopy. And then, um, and uh, again, I uh, he's he's not only extremely good at his art, this uh, basically designing building microscopes, and then also he is such a great educator and in such uh, a person that I really admire. And then uh, so I learned a lot from him, not only the skills 
in terms of these physical chemistry knowledge and uh, hands-on skills, but also just learned to be how to be an independent researcher, how to be also how to juggle between family life and then work. Um, and then so, yeah, so that was a really positive experience uh, for me when I was a PhD student at Notre Dame. So then you got into high resolution microscopy. And it, yes, what, yes. All right. Super so, resolution, actually. Yeah. <laughs> super resolution. Okay. Well, all right. Yeah. What's, what's, the, what's the difference? Yeah. So that's a great question. So the idea that uh, high resolution we can understand is just, well, you see seeing things more clearly. You differentiate different objects apart at, uh, at a very small level. So that's what we call high resolution. So the definition of super resolution is to achieve the resolution that is theoretically not possible using a specific wavelength of light. So the idea is that for particularly wavelength of light, there's a finite number you can, uh, uh, you, there's a finite a resolution you can achieve theoretically. Uh, and then basically the field of super resolution is to say, how can we use different tricks to bypass this theoretical resolution limit and achieve higher resolution than theoretically possible? Uh, and then for me per, uh, specifically, I worked in the field of super resolution um, in the field called um, in the wavelength range, in the mid infrared range. So that range is actually a range that is uh, uh, it's the first concept of super resolution in mid-infrared. And then that range is particularly important because that actually contains the fingerprint uh, information of all different kinds of chemicals and tissues. So when I say fingerprints, it's really fascinating that every single uh, type of chemical has this unique characteristics within this wavelength range. So then basically you can analyze different kinds of materials uh, just by uh, uh, imaging just by taking a scan in the mid-infrared range. That is a very common type of uh, analytical method in, in chemistry. It's called FTIR, Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy. It's a very common type of uh, analytical method, but the uh, limitation there is the resolution, the imaging resolution is extremely bad. And then basically we came up with a new method which improved the resolution by 10 times, which is basically 10 times higher than what is theoretically possible and then that was uh, a, the big, uh, a big part of my PhD project. So what type of materials were you, were you looking at with, with these super resolution microscopes? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, basically this project, we were looking at nanomaterials, basically tried to differentiate uh, individual nanomaterial, uh, nanoparticles from each other. And then, um, uh, so that was just the research part of it. We published a good paper on it, but then actually this technology turned out to be extremely useful for um, a lot of other applications, such as uh, semiconductors, basically detecting defects on a, on a, um, on a semiconductor chip. So that's number one. And then number two is to actually detect trace amount of explosive in a military setting. And then actually there's another area that is uh, growing really rapidly is to, uh, and this will, uh, this will be relevant to you, Dennis, is that uh, in the field of pathology, they're actually exploring using mid-infrared to uh, remove the step of staining. So as we know that H&E stain is is the most common type of staining. It's basically this gold standard for pathology. Right. Um, yeah. And then so the idea is that, well, the reason why you do H&E staining is that on a trans uh, on a piece of tissue, on a, uh, on a slice uh, of tissue, it's almost translucent. You don't see any contrast going on. It's really hard for you to make out the difference between different types of tissue. 
But then in the case of mid-infrared, as I mentioned, it has all this information in it because, again, this is the fingerprint region. So everything looks different in this uh, wavelength range. So the idea is that, well, instead of staining it uh, using all these chemicals, which takes time and material, what if, what if we just use this special type of microscope to extract this kind of fingerprint uh, information so you differentiate different types of tissue, this inherent signal that it, it comes with, and now uh, you get all these his, uh, histology uh, scan um, images, and then you read these kind of uh, images without uh, basically skip the step of staining. Uh, so that is a new emerging area. Uh, it's still not mature yet. There's no clinical evidence that it's, uh, it is comparable to H&E. But then I would say the concept makes sense. Uh, there are quite a few researchers working on it. So I think it's a very exciting emerging field. Yeah, definitely. I, that could certainly save a lot of time and, uh, you know, materials and money and things in, in pathology. That's I, I didn't know about that. That's that's an exciting area. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, can we talk about then what is what is deep tissue microscopy? Because I know you did some work in this field as well. For deep tissue microscopy, so the idea is that uh, why we say it's deep tissue is that because usually it's not deep. So the idea of optical imaging or say using light to look at structures, uh, you usually are talking about microscopes, uh, microscope slides. So basically trans, uh, the transparent uh, samples. Or you're talking about, say, using a, a, a scope to look at, uh, say, melanoma, so which is completely on the surface. So that's the kind of like a common scenario for imaging. But then when it comes to uh, deep tissue imaging, is that we're trying to bridge the gap between optical imaging and then the the other modalities, medical imaging modalities, such as CT, MRI, uh, and then uh, ultrasound. These kind of uh, imaging modalities, they are uh, the, the penetration depth is not a problem. Uh, but then the downside is that, first of all, it's a trans uh, cross-sectional view, and it's not easy to interpret, especially ultrasound. And then uh, the resolution is usually not as good. So we're mm-hmm. trying to say, okay, how can we bridge this gap to say we still use light, but we want to see really deep into the, to, into the tissue so we can actually provide more information at high resolution and then also in a very convenient way uh, without without hurting the tissue, without hurting in, in the case of uh, animals or human beings in a clinical setting. Okay. And so like how, how deep into the tissue are we talking about? Is this like millimeters or several centimeters or, or what? Yeah. So great question. So uh, when we say deep in the world of optics, Deep means uh, more than a, uh, more than one millimeter is called deep. So it's not deep. It's not comparable to any of the modalities that I mentioned. But then, what we can achieve in uh, in the Angela uh, in, 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 in Angela lab at MIT is that in this lab we can achieve on the order of centimeters of penetration depth uh, with some some of the modalities. And then, uh, so that is a quantum leap compared to the traditional type of optical imaging. Uh, and then, yes, it is not comparable to CT ultrasound, but the advantage is that now you have a, a method that can be incorporated with, say, something like a laparoscope, because laparoscope are, they are just optical imaging, right? So you're looking, looking at just a reflected light. So then we are basically saying, well, uh, we can now basically in- incorporate these two images together and you can overlay these two images. Then you can get these kind of seamless integration into the surgical setting because in surgical settings, you're working on the surface anyway. You're not, pu- uh, you're not uh, penetrating all the way through. Uh, the mm-hmm. surgeons are cutting on the surface anyway. 
Okay. Okay. That's interesting. That's, that's an interesting application. So when you were doing your postdoctoral fellowship at MIT, was this the, what you were working on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so at MIT, I was part of uh, Dr. Angela Belcher's lab. She is the head of bioengineering at MIT. And then, uh, yeah, deep tissue imaging is her research specialty. And then, yeah, so that's part of the project. Um, so I'm part of this bigger project, this bigger umbrella of research. Um, but then, um, what I was particularly working on was actually lymphatic systems because we had a, um, had a collaborative project with Dr. Uh, Irvine. And Dr. Irvine's lab uh, is specialized in immunology, or say in th- in that project specifically, they invented a new type of adjuvant. Uh, so that adjuvant is basically a component of a vaccine, and then their adjuvant can make any vaccine ten times stronger. So that is a very exciting uh, invention that they had. Uh, but then. What we were trying to help is to say, okay, how can we see this immune response in vivo without hurting the animal? So how can we be uh, less invasive as possible? So do not try to disturb the immune response um, and then while actually monitor this immune response using optical imaging. Did you make the connection to uh, like applying this to pathology at the time? Yeah, great question. The answer is no, absolutely not. I, by that time, actually, okay. I didn't know much about pathology, especially the particular need uh, that we're going to talk about in gross examination, because I've been working with animals uh, for my entire um, uh, career at that point. And then so it's really fascinating that you ask is it, it all started uh, as a, a kind of an accident. So what happened was Dr. Irvine, they posed this question to us and say, okay, how do you see lymph nodes and lymphatic uh, uh, vessels? How do you see the immune response in vivo without hurting the animals? So I started uh, a search basically to say, okay, what are the modalities that are out there in the market right now in the clinical settings um, that can help uh, help us do, uh, achieve this. So actually I tried every single thing that is out there, for example, injecting a fluorescent dye, ICG, um, and then there's um, OCT, uh, uh, optical coherence tomography. And then there's another uh, technique called latest speckle imaging, all these kind of different techniques. So we got data that is that looks interesting, uh, but then um, all of them are uh, either. So first of all, it requires injection, well, which is a hassle, and then it creates uh, some other problems associated with injection. Or um, in the case of OCT it, and, and laser speckle, the the um, setup can be very sophisticated and, and uh, hard to set up. So actually, the accident started when I was um, uh, working that day on a different project. And then I just, uh, uh, again, another uh, setup for deep tissue imaging. Um, I was working on it earlier that day. And then uh, all of a sudden, um, the postdoc from Dr. Irvine's lab walked in, and then uh, he needed to extract lymph nodes in a mouse. And then uh, I stopped my experiment, forgot to turn it off, and then I started helping him uh, with his mouse experiment. But then uh, it was fascinating to me that he has been working on this for more than five years and is extremely proficient in the art of extracting lymph nodes. But then again, that day he was having trouble. He spent like a long time getting really frustrated, couldn't find it. And especially if you look at the anatomical structure of mice, the lymph node location of mice is extremely well-defined. So in terms of the um, the landmarks you're supposed to look for, it's really, really easy to find. It's supposed to be easy to find, but still he was frustrated. And then all of a sudden, okay. I, I took a look at the monitor, which again is set up for a different experiment, and it showed up, as the lymph node showed up as a has an improved contrast compared to what our eyes can see. 
I was like, huh, what is that? And apparently it confirmed, well, the contrast that I was looking at was actually lymph nodes. So uh, because of that, I actually started, that was one of the pivotal moments where I, I realized I'm onto something. And then basically I pivoted uh, that uh, technology or I improved that technology, catered that technology to specifically visualizing lymph nodes. Uh, and then that started the whole journey of, uh, of uh, focusing on using this Existing technology, uh, change it, uh, improve it, and then focus on visualizing lymph nodes. But uh, at that point, I uh, still didn't know about the need in pathology. And that is actually a whole other story, how I get to know about that. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Jeremy Lee. We'll be right back. LabVine enables improved healthcare by helping labs future-proof, transform careers, and build professional relationships. They do this with tools, solutions, and resources curated from internationally recognized sources. I want to tell you about several new features on LabVine right now. One of them is the Lab Relevance Compass from Jeremy Schubert, who you might remember from episode 65 of this podcast. There's also a webinar that Jeremy did that goes into more detail about the Lab Relevance Compass, which you can find on VineStream. You can also find a couple new courses on communication skills from 2020 Science, and there are several new content experts as part of the ConfLab as well. You can check out LabVine by following the link in the show notes, and you can sign up absolutely free. And while you're there, you can also listen to the People of Pathology podcast right there on my VineStream channel. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Jeremy Lee on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay, so this it, it sounds like this was completely an accident then that you just happened upon this? Yeah, well, so it's so the inception point is was an accident. So that's actually really fascinating. Okay. It's just yeah, because then the setup was built for something else, but it turns out it was particularly good for lymph nodes. Uh, and then, but then it wasn't the as good as the pictures that you saw before uh, on my LinkedIn, right. um, and then other places. And then so that's actually a different uh, a different place. A different kind of contrast uh, that I saw. It's not nearly as good as we have right now. So uh, it started as an accident, and then I slowly improved the technology so it gets to the point where we at now, which is very high resolution and very clear images, and then we actually see about three millimeter deep into the tissue. Can we kind of talk about that process? Like you've got the idea, and you realize yeah. you're onto something. So then, then what do you do? Yeah, exactly. So. So um, at that point, I realized I'm onto something, but then I, I was, then I started asking myself this question. So this technology, this lymph node thing must be bigger than just animal research. So um, I started, I uh, uh, looked around and then I realized at MIT, they have a program called a, uh, an I-Core uh, program. So uh, the i program is actually not just at, at MIT. It's a national program. You can uh, participate in a, a, any uh, universities. Well, not any universities. You, they have hubs in different parts of the country. Um, there's always a hub uh, okay. near you. So I would encourage anyone who has a technology and want to explore the application of it to participate in this program. Uh, so the idea is the pro program is that you can actually apply and get a $50,000 grant to 
do one thing that is to interview uh, potential customers. So we actually apply for the program and then we actually uh, get the grant and then we started the journey of interviewing customers, in this case, clinicians. Uh, and then the requirement is that in the course of this program, which is about uh, two months, you have to interview at least 100 potential customers, in our case, 100 uh, uh, physicians. And then actually that was probably by far the most rewarding process that I had uh, within uh, in my entire uh, startup journey so far. And then uh, we actually by now have interviewed uh, more than 300 physicians uh, around the world. But then how I get to know about this problem is that but so I started the interview by just asking around and people all say, oh, wow, this will be uh, useful for surgeons. So then uh, but I didn't know that many surgeons at the time, especially oncology surgeons. So I decided to just go to a conference. So I went to the American College of Surgeon annual conference in San Francisco uh, and then just basically stopped every surgeon that I saw at the venue and then say, hey, look at these images. Are these useful? Uh, so everybody was fascinated by the images that I showed them. But the response was, well, it was really overwhelming because every specialty is different, every protocol is different. But then one pivotal moment that happened at the conference was one surgeon who told me that you think it's just us who cannot see the lymph nodes? Even the pathologist can't see it. And then I was like, huh. Oh. I didn't expect that. And it was just like, I didn't know that even if it's outside of the body, people still have difficulty finding them. I just had a hard time imagining it. But then I decided to say, okay, let me dig into the literature to try to see what exactly the clinical need is. Then I, to my very much surprise, I, I was, uh, I was presently surprised to find out that there's a lot of literature talking about, uh, the number of lymph nodes, the, how inconsistency can be, how, um, different hospitals, different pathologies, different pathology assistants can have very different results. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, one, one, particular project uh, or particular paper that really uh, surprised me was from Mayo Clinic. So bas uh, basically, in that paper, they're saying that even within the Mayo Clinic system, two hospitals for the exact same type of patients, the number of lymph nodes can vary by more than 50%. And that was actually uh, within the Mayo Clinic system. And then I also found out, I mean, this is uh, a common sense uh, to you, Then it's, it's just, yes, the number of lymph nodes is uh, has been proven to be correlated with the survival rate of cancer patients, especially in the right. case of colorectal cancer, right? So the protocol is always to find every single lymph nodes you can find. But then apparently, uh, even in, uh, within the Mayo Clinic system, it's, it's, it's so inconsistent. So I realized um, two things by reading literature is that one is that uh, lymph nodes are extremely important. It has uh, a lot to do with the survival rate of cancer patients. And then secondly, is that the uh, right now the practice is extremely uh, difficult and inconsistent. So I feel like, oh, wow. So that is actually so now I'm re I realize I'm onto something bigger is that the clinical need is actually not only real is and it's quite urgent. It, it, yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, so actually, just to continue this story is that uh, at that point, I realized, well, uh, I still don't know enough uh, pathologists. I don't know that many pathologists. I don't have them in my network. So how can I find them? So two things that I did is that one, I just cold emailed the authors of those papers that I read. So some of doctors uh, at Stanford, Mayo, and then all these different places. And then the second thing I did is that I reached out to the pathology assistant programs in the United States, I realized that there are not that many of them, right? Um, right. And then, uh, so the one that I uh, that I reached out to first was um, uh, Professor Rob Cottrell at Quinnipiac University. 
And then, oh, sure. um, yeah, so yeah, uh, so he is, um, he's a program director there. And then I still remember that day that I basically say, uh, said, well, uh, Professor Cottrell, uh, look at these images that I got from my animal studies. It looks like I can see lymph nodes. Uh, and then this thing is real time, does not need any preparation. Uh, it doesn't hurt the tissue or the operator in any way. It's really easy to use. Uh, do you see the potential of it? And then the email that I got within half an hour from Rob, well, uh, is that, well, uh, can I, can, can, can you call me now? And then actually we had an, uh, on that day, we had an hour long discussion about how we can potentially use it, uh, to help gross examination, uh, in pathology, in, uh, in anatomical pathology. So that was, uh, again, another, among the very, a few, uh, super important pivotal moments that I had, uh, in my career. Okay. So you've got this and you know that you're really onto something and you know that there's a need for it. How do you develop the system, the, the product? So in terms of developing the product, actually, the technical aspect is what we're good at. So uh, I spent my entire career uh, building stuff. And then we have a mechanical engineer slash industrial designer full-time on the team who is exceptional in terms of translating the need, the requirements uh, like the technical requirements into an actual product that you can use. But then uh, one thing that I, I learned is that that is not enough in to, uh, to actually get a good product out. The good product out is that we really want to listen to the customers. We really want to understand the, the need uh, well enough so we can actually seamlessly integrate this into the current workflow. So what we did is that kind of adopted, we kind of adopted this idea in software development, which, called, which is called Agile. So the idea is that you you don't build the full product right away. You actually uh, basically keep keep your customers engaged in the entire development process. So what we did is that we prototype extremely quickly. We have this really scrappy but functional device, and then we give it to the pathology assistant to try it out, and then we get their take on it quickly. And then just say, okay, a go or no go? Do you like it or not? What's the feedback? What's the pushback? And then um, it, we actually went through the iterations. At this time, it's the, it's the fifth iteration now. And we're finally happy about this design for a number of reasons that we can d discuss in a bit. But then, yeah, so the whole idea is that we actually uh, have this agile kind of philosophy, which is to keep customers engaged in the entire process, try to be as scrappy as possible, but prove the value propositions to your customers first before you be uh, before you do the full FDA compliant or uh, uh, do, do the um, industrial this standard compliant engineering. So we save that for the very last, which we which we are doing now, finally. Um, but then the idea is we wanted to get the uh, to meet the need as well as possible. And then, so for example, the, a few iterations that we had is that we initially had the idea of um, mounting it in the hood, uh, on the ceiling of the hood. Um, so that was one idea, but then we realized uh, that idea could be be a problem because then we have to send a person there to install it, and then it's hard to maintain. And then, so it, uh, we're limited to a specific type of hood. Uh, so we kind of say, okay, that's a no-go. And then the second iteration, we actually had an idea of say, say, what about a top, uh, desktop one, but then looking down just like a, a typical microscope, uh, like a, 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 of that form factor, then we got the pushback that is too big. Uh, it, it's too, it blocks the view of uh, this uh, handler handling the specimen. And then mm. we had the okay. arm idea uh, of just a kind of like uh, mounting it on the articulating arm. And then so you can swing it to any direction. 
but then we realized the arm could be could be a problem in a way that it's uh, it, it's hard to secure, and then the arm has to be kind of long, has to be kind of out of the way, uh, and then um, and then it could be hard to maneuver, and then you kind of need a third arm. I mean, the person kind of need a third arm to to handle the device while uh, handling the specimen. So then that was a no go. Then finally we got this. Uh, idea of uh, having it as a shoebox. So the idea is that now it's just a shoebox sitting on the cutting board or next to the cutting board. You just place the specimen after bite loafing and then examining really quickly, and then you can move on to the next slide very quickly. So I have a, a the animation um, demo at the very end. Um, we can uh, talk about that a little more. But the idea is that we went through many, many iterations, uh, and then the whole time we are keeping the uh, customers engaged. This sounds really interesting, and I'm, I, I would love to get my hands on this actually, and I know a lot of other uh, PAs would as well. Yeah, yes, yeah. So I that that was one thing that I realized is that yeah, when I was reaching out to different PAs, uh, I realized a lot of people are really excited about this, and then um, mm -hmm. so I, I am I so that's also I really appreciate the the support I got from the community. It's just I feel like the PA community had has been extremely supportive of me doing this to say they actually uh, I got a lot of free help I got a lot of uh, uh, ideas and then um, and then I told you that I've been working with uh, John Wagner who is a, yeah. a very a very knowledgeable PA opinion leader uh, in the field and then I learned a lot from him as well and then of course Rob Cottrell so all these uh, people have been so supportive that I, I feel like I'm really lucky that um, I, I am working with this uh, community that is very very supportive yeah so uh, how far are you then from actual like product to market like to product yeah. to sell yeah 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 so we're at the point that uh so we have the design ready and then we're basically at the very last step of designing the casing of it so the in internal part the imaging part or the the components the function components are completely ready to go and then the last thing is to get the casing uh ready to and then make it easy to clean and then uh machine that part and then uh and then we're ready to go so in terms of time it's about two months from the official product launch but then we do have a, a fully functional prototype p kind of product so it's kind of a uh almost product uh so that basically a product without the casing with a prop without the proper casing and so that part we're ready to be uh it is ready to be tested by by any lab right now so uh, our hope is that we can actually uh, get a few uh, hospitals and labs involved so then we can test it out first and then also make few uh, further improvement upon the current version and then again listen to the customers listen to the clinicians uh, to to make sure that we're uh, actually designing a useful product yeah that sounds great all right is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up and then we'll we'll go to the the, the demo part of it after that uh, one thing that we can uh, mention here or at the end, we're looking for clinical uh, collaborators and also just early adopters who are uh, interested in this uh, technology, interested in this device. We can basically, uh, we are looking for um, the, these uh, early adopters to see um, how we can actually perfect this um, product. And then, yeah, so um, at the end, we can... Um, include my contact information. So I'll be more than happy to talk to anyone who's interested in demoing it. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. I'll, I'll include that in uh, the links in the show notes for sure. Okay. Okay. All right. That sounds great. All right. So this is, this was interesting to, to talk about 
you know, where, where you've come from and, and, and this product that you've created that I think is going to revolutionize lymph node uh, searches in pathology. So Dr. Jeremy Lee, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you very much, Dennis. I really enjoyed the conversation. Big thanks to Dr. Jeremy Lee. We also did a video demonstration of Cision Vision, and I'll tell you about that after this preview of the next episode with Dr. Melissa Upton. And it sounds like this lesson really stuck with you, I mean, to this day. Oh, definitely. I've seen that play out in so many settings in the world and so many of my colleagues and friends in the in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology come from backgrounds where they're the first college graduate and it was transformative for their opportunity to interact with people from all over the world. I mean, you've seen that yourself in your in your role as a pathology assistant that yeah. you've had a chance to meet people from all over the world, which you might not have had if you had not gone on and gotten a good education after finishing high school. You know, the, the horizons and the opportunities expand as we get more education and more skills. Right. And yeah, and you're right. And the, it's not just getting the education, but having the opportunity or, uh, you know, like you said, the access to it, to be able to do that. Access is critical. And it's one of the drivers for my passion. I'm, I'm really a, a clinician educator with, certainly I've done lots and lots of clinical work, but my real passion is in the educational aspect because it's so transformative to see people start a training program and ex and expand their horizons, expand their sense of self. Tune in next week for more from Dr. Melissa Upton. Now, as I mentioned, Dr. Lee and I did a video demonstration of Cision Vision, and he showed me exactly how it works. I'm going to link that in the show notes so you can watch the video. And if you've got anything to do with finding lymph nodes and tissue specimens, I think you're going to find this interesting. Like I said during the interview, I can't wait to get my hands on this thing, and I think it'll really save us a lot of time, and it'll help increase lymph node yield, and ultimately, that's better for the patients. So like I said, check out the link in the show notes, and I'll link to some of the other things that we talked about today as well. You can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or connect with me on LinkedIn, or just go to peopleofpathology.com. You can find links to various podcast platforms to listen to the show, as well as the links to LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.